Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. The longest wait. Hamas has released two more hostages, but there are still more than 200 others. We'll speak with an Israeli peace activist involved in past negotiations who says this crisis is unlike any other his country has faced. Hotly debated. One of the authors of a new report tells us a global conference meant to address the threats of climate change is itself exposing migrant workers to the threats of climate change. Second among equals, nearly 50 years since most of Iceland's women walked out, a new strike is coming. One of the organizers tells us there is still plenty of room for improvement when it comes to gender equality in her country. Clean bills of health. The city of Columbus, Ohio, is wiping out medical debt for about one-third of its citizens. One of the architects of the plan explains how they did it. He got the jump on everyone else. As a co-founder of the dangerous sports club, the late David Kirk pioneered a number of ill-advised activities, including a terrifying sport he and his friends dubbed bungee jumping. And sparkling repartee. The sculptor behind an incredibly reflective chrome gnome tells us how his creation wound up being relocated to a Melbourne garden, which it has really taken a shine to. As it happens, the Monday edition, radio that really envies its gnome attic lifestyle. Everyone in Israel wants to see the hostages taken by Hamas come home. But how to get them all back safely in the midst of a war remains unclear. Today, Hamas freed two elderly Israeli women, citing humanitarian and health reasons. That follows the release of two American citizens on Friday. At the time, we spoke to the son of another hostage. Matty Danzig's father, Alex, was captured when Hamas fighters raided their kibbutz. Here's part of what he told us. I don't have any news. We hope he's still alive uh, in Gaza, and we hope uh, the government uh, will do what she should do, uh, bring him back home. Him and many others, hundreds of people, they they should be home. They left us. They left us alone to die, to be massacred for hours and hours. Nobody came to help us. They just slaughtered and, and burned us alive. And their, their, their responsibility is to bring back all these people that were kidnapped. This should be the first priority. Matty Danzig, whose father Alex has been taken hostage, talking to Neil about the responsibility of the Israeli Defense Forces. Gershon Baskin is a longtime peace activist who has been involved in past hostage negotiations. We reached him in Jerusalem just before today's hostage release. Gershon, there were so many emotions in Maddie Danzig's voice when we spoke on Friday. You have many personal connections to what is unfolding as well. What are the emotions you've been feeling over these last two weeks? 
boy, that interview is heartbreaking, like so many others that we've heard over the last two weeks. I have personal friends who've been killed or abducted to Gaza. Um, one of my good friends in Jerusalem has 10 family members who have been abducted to Gaza and two killed. Um, this is something that touches all of us. It is the biggest trauma that Israel has experienced since 1948. It's the biggest attack against Israel since 1948. And it's not only the horrors of the attack that affects us, but also the loss of confidence of all of us in the ability of Israel to protect itself, to defend us. As he said, we were left there on our own while the terrorists burned us alive and killed us. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's terrifying and uh, it's very scary. And it's very frustrating because negotiations under these circumstances are very difficult. They're not direct. They're convoluted, complicated, and you don't even know when you're talking to the other side, which is not direct, that there's a decision maker there who can actually make a decision and deliver. This is also very personal for you because you were involved in negotiating the release of an Israeli soldier, Gilad Shalit, back in 2011. What is different this time around? Well, Gilad Shalit was one soldier who was wounded and abducted in a commando raid in an army base across the Gaza border. They were able to keep one soldier in a secret location, in secret locations for five years and four months without Israel ever discovering where he was. He was a very valuable asset to them because they knew they would get a large amount of prisoners in exchange for his life. So they kept him alive, they kept him well, he was cared for, he was never physically tortured. Here we're dealing with an extraordinarily different situation. 222 is the number of hostages who are listed by the Israelis right now. They include infants and small children and women and men and elderly people and sick people. And they even took workers from Thailand and Nepal and other countries who are not part of this conflict at all. We're in the midst of a war with an enormous bombing campaign going on in Gaza, destroying much of the Gaza Strip, more than a million Gazans are homeless already. So there's an, a horrific humanitarian crisis in Gaza as well, with so many innocent people being killed. There's no way that Hamas can keep this secret location of more than 200 people. The logistics of keeping them spread out around the Gaza Strip must be a nightmare for them. With the war going on, just providing them with food and with the needs, do they have baby formula? Do they have diapers? Do they have medicine? For the sick people, there were hostages who are diabetic and need insulin. There's even a young person on the spectrum. There are people in their 80s. I mean, this must be a, be a logistical nightmare. You do have contacts within Hamas. So what are you hearing, if anything, from your contacts? Well, what I can say is the, the things that Hamas has published in broad daylight, and they publish it usually through the Western media, and they are saying that they are prepared to release all the Israeli civilian hostages in exchange for a ceasefire. My understanding is that it's a bit more complex than that. If it was as simple as that, I think we would have seen it happening. They did release these two women the other night. Now, yeah. I understood that they were Americans. Some people say that they also had Israeli citizenship. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the truth is. Well, I was going to ask you about them because I, I wondered yeah. what you think was, was said and done and why those were the two first to be released. 
they were probably being held separately from other hostages. My impression is that because there was direct involvement of President Biden in their release, he probably said the names to the Qataris or, or Secretary Blinken did. They, they were already made public and they were the icon of the American hostages who were held. And, and we have to understand this is part of Hamas's psychological warfare. In releasing these two was a sign that they're human, that there are going to be more releases to put pressure on Israel from within, from the Israel public. Um, it's very clear that the overwhelming majority of the hostage families want this to be the number one priority. It's not necessarily the number one priority of Israel. There are other priorities like dismantling Hamas's ability to ever attack Israel again and threaten Israel. Mm -hmm. There are huge dilemmas involved in the hands of the decision makers on, on what to do and how to move forward. If we go back to the 2011 deal, that deal involved the release of some of the people responsible for killing your wife's cousin. When you look back That's on right. that, did you have any, do you have any regrets? How do you look back on that? Um, at the time when the release was made, the assumption or the hope, better said, that I had, and at least the Mossad officer that I was working under, David Maidan, was that once there was no longer an Israeli soldier being held in Gaza, there would no longer be excuses for the closure, the siege, the blockade on Gaza, and that Gaza could move in a different direction. That didn't happen. And, and no matter how hard I tried over the years to influence policy, the policies of Prime Minister Netanyahu were very clear that his strategy was to keep a weakened Hamas in power in Gaza and a delegitimized Palestinian authority in Ramallah so that no one can say to him, you should negotiate with the Palestinians because his response was, who? We have no partner. We have an organization that wants to destroy Israel in Gaza and we have a corrupted Palestinian administration in Ramallah and therefore we want peace, but there's no one to make peace with. His strategy worked for a long time because it removed the Palestinian issue from the Israeli political agenda. And the bottom line is that you cannot occupy another people on their land for 56 years and expect to have peace. Nor can you lock more than 2 million people in a blockade, in a siege, in an open-air prison for 18 years and expect to have quiet. And sooner or later, the Israeli public has to wake to that reality as well, that there are two people living on the land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, and we have to look at each other in the eyes and say, everyone here has the same right to the same rights. And that's where we begin to turn a new page. You're also a friend of Vivian Silver, the Canadian peace activist. Her family believes right. she is among the hostages as well. Have you had any word about her? None whatsoever. And I passed her name on to contacts in Gaza to ask about her. Mm -hmm. But Hamas does not give out information on hostages. They never give out information on Gilad Shalit, other than saying all the time that he was well and being kept taken care of. I don't expect to receive any specific information about any hostages. Um, Vivian is a good friend. I've known her for more than 30 years. We've worked together. We've been on marches together and peace activities together and many, many conferences together for a very long time. And she's an extraordinary woman. And God help us all. She better come back alive. Gershon, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. Gershon Baskin is the Middle East Director of the Human Rights Advocacy Group International Communities Organization. He's in Jerusalem. And you can find that interview on our website, cbc.ca slash AIH.
It's been 48 years since women in Iceland first took to the streets in a general strike. And when they did, it was a turning point in the country's history. The following year, Iceland's parliament passed a law guaranteeing equal pay. Five years later, its citizens elected the world's first female president. Ever since, Iceland has routinely ranked among the world's most gender-equitable nations. But a growing number of women there say the promises of 1975 remain unfulfilled. And now they're taking to the streets once more. Freya Steingrimsdottir is one of the organizers of a new women's strike happening tomorrow in Iceland. We reached her in Reykjavik. Freya, can you say the slogan for your strike for me in Icelandic? Uh, in Icelandic, it's Kallarðu þetta jafnrétti. And what does that mean? <laughs> it means you call this equality. So that's the question guiding your strike yeah. tomorrow. You know, yeah. uh, I think a lot of people, and you may know this, have this idea that Iceland is, is very progressive, a uh, bastion mm-hmm. of gender equality even. Is that not the case? Mm-hmm. Uh, Iceland is uh, definitely a leader in gender equality around the world. And that's kind of what the slogan is referring to. Uh, we have, we, we women in Iceland are, are very often being told that, you know, we ha- we have it so good here that we shouldn't really demand any more equality than we already have. But we know that uh, if we stand still, we might start going backwards. And we see in many countries that there's a backlash when it comes to gender equality, but also with regard to uh, LGBTQ uh, uh, rights and so on. So we we want to move forward. We want to be the example that we're made out to be and reach full gender equality. Have things been... been- slipping in your view in iceland how how is the country falling short in your view well in in the global indexes of gender equality it usually measures uh, things like uh, participation in the labor market and uh, the gender pay gap and uh, we have made significant strides when it comes to that uh, but still women continue to earn 21 percent less than their male counterparts but also these indexes, they don't include numbers on gender-based and sexual violence. And in Iceland, we're no better than other countries when it comes to uh, gender-based and sexual violence. According to a huge study that was done here, over 40% of women in Iceland have experienced such violence in their lifetimes. That's from the University of Iceland, a report that, that they yes. did. Yes. When yeah. you say that, that, that there's still a 21% wage gap there, uh, and you know mm-hmm. the World Economic Forum puts Iceland yeah. at, at the top of its list in this category mm-hmm. for the last 14 years, it says that, mm-hmm. that Iceland has closed 91.2% of its wage gap. So what's the, what's the disconnect between those numbers? Well, you can measure gender pay gap in different ways. Uh, What we're referring to is the difference between the average earnings of women and men, because uh, the occupations traditionally associated with women, cleaning, childcare, caregiving, you know, these are some of the lowest paid in society, Mm -hmm. and that women are a vast majority of workers in those professions. The first time women in Iceland held a strike like this one was in 1975. So what kind of place Mm -hmm. does that event hold in in people's memories there? I mean, are people aware of it and do they hold it close? It's a historic event that we all know about and learn about. If we weren't there, (laughs) Uh, we learn about it in history and we everyone really looks at it in a positive light. And that, of course, affects how people are looking at this 
this strike uh, tomorrow. They are the the vast majority of people and and even companies uh, are very positive. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. So, ninety percent of Icelandic women refused to work on that day forty eight years ago mm-hmm. as part of that strike. Yeah. So, yeah. you talked about the buy in. We know the prime minister is going to be there. Mm-hmm. A woman also. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. with that buy in, though, including from businesses, you know, if it's not if it's if you're not really at odds with with folks, if it's not. A contentious issue, uh, will it actually affect change? I think, I mean, even if we didn't have the strike tomorrow, I think the the last couple of weeks leading up to this event has uh, gotten us all talking again about what needs to be done. And I think if we're already talking, then the next step is uh, action taken against gender-based violence and uh, against the undervaluing of uh, women's work. Uh, we have, for example, collective bargaining rounds coming up. So they're 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 negotiating new contracts, and there we are putting the the demand for uh, women's work being valued correctly in the labor market uh, at the forefront. Uh, I wanted to ask you. I don't know how old you are. What's your first memory of that first strike? Uh, I'm I'm 34, okay. so, so I wasn't there in 1975. Yeah. Uh, but I remember uh, I remember my grandmother talking about it, and she was there. Uh, she was she was uh, she had her four children with her. She didn't uh, leave them at home with uh, with my grandpa. Uh, <laughs> Still working. So, yeah, you know, I, think, I think that's yeah, <laughs> that's that's, uh, that's a typical typical uh, woman. Uh, so yeah, I think uh, I think most of us actually, if before we heard about it in historic lessons, we probably heard about it from uh, the older generation. How do men receive it there? Men your age. <laughs> the millennial dad is kind of uh, almost uh, a thing, you know. They they are more hands on than many many other generations before them. But uh, but it's this discussion about the mental load and the kind of buying the birthday presents and when the the clothes are are, are too small for the kids to go to the shop and buy new clothes and so on, decide what needs to be bought for at the at the grocery store and all that. I think that's a discussion that that many haven't had yet. So, I mean, they're positive, but they're like, uh, you know, oh, they, they thought they'd already, you know, kind of gotten there. Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. still ways to go. I can hear people <laughs> nodding, all of our listeners right now. I can hear them. It just, uh, yeah, it's absolutely going to resonate what you're saying. So what do you want young women who are who are young, little right now, mm. what do you want them to to know and remember about this day? I mean, I hope I hope it'll uh, have you know have an, an impact on them so that they will tell their children and grandchildren about it. Uh, I hope they will have something to say, like we have to say that afterwards it led to l- changes in legislation, the first female president, and so on. So I hope uh, there will be concrete action taken from this that they can refer to, and that in in ten years, twenty years, uh, we will actually have reached full gender equality in Iceland. So hopefully it will uh, achieve a better world for my daughter, at least. Freya, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Nice to talk to you. Likewise. Freya Steingrim's daughter is one of the organizers of a women's strike happening tomorrow in Iceland and the communications director for the Icelandic Federation for Public Workers. We reached her in Reykjavik. 
goes by many names. Frankie is one. Inexplicably, Ian Fitzgibbon is another. If you ask his creator, he's called Reflective Lullaby. But he's most commonly known as the Chrome Gnome. The shiny sculpture was commissioned in 2015, and after years of bringing joy and considerable reflectivity to motorists in the Melbourne, Australia area, Mr. Fitzgibbon is being retired to the city's McClelland Sculpture Park and Gallery. Gregor Kreger is the New Zealand-based artist who created the Chrome Gnome. We reached him in Auckland. Gregor, the, the names for your creation uh, certainly hint a little bit at uh, what it looks like, but describe Reflective Lullaby, as you've named it, or the Chrome Gnome for our listeners. The Reflective Lullaby is a nine-meter-tall um, gnome. I believe that must be the biggest gnome in the world, mm-hmm. and it's made out of a mirror-polished stainless steel. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it's a sculpture that just recently got... Um, installed in the McClellan Sculpture Park. Yeah, what first inspired this for you? What you know, how did this piece come to your mind? Um I proposed this piece um quite a few years ago. Um it was first installed in 2015 on the side of the motorway in Melbourne in Australia. Mm-hmm. And um if you think about gnomes and also how people experience sculpture, mm-hmm. you kind of try to kind of um raise up some ideas and so on but you know if i talk about gnomes in general they're sort of um funny kind of um creatures that have kind of quite interesting sort of historic um, semi-mystical sort of origin in europe but for me you know they were definitely about guardians of underworld and minerals and so on so um you know when they are kind of made in that scale they um, they kind of, for me, they almost look a bit like guardians of everyday life. Mm-hmm. Well, how did people in Melbourne receive the Chrome Gnome over, over the years it was, it was there? Um, it was quite interesting. You know, uh, one of the lovely things was um, that happened straight away was that people start bringing little gnomes to the large gnome sort of thing. <laughs> so in a space of about a week, was probably there was about 50 sort of little ceramic and concrete and plasticky kind of gnomes that were positioned at the feet of this large gnome. Like a shrine? Which was or? quite a... Yeah, a bit kind of like a shrine, you know, and there was lots of people that um, visited it and so on, which was really good and welcomed. But on the other side, because this location was by the motorway, it's not really public kind of um, space that people were encouraged to walk to. So sudden freeway motorway authority was a little bit nervous about that so that's why they removed all the little gnomes yeah oh. the, the gnome was also decorated in 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 different ways as well right um, <laughs> yeah i mean um you know i'm not based in melbourne i'm actually uh, three hours flight away you know in new zealand in auckland but i did see some photographs that you know people kind of sometimes dress him a little bit and um yeah Sports jerseys, kind of Christmas decorations. Apparently, yeah. And Sport jerseys, um, yeah. And apparently even a little phallus. Phallus, yeah. Just making sure everyone yeah, heard that, a- yeah. <laughs> apparently <laughs> somebody made a little phallus that they stick on as well. So tinfoil. Um, yeah, tinfoil or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you, did you, you know, as, the, as an artist, did you expect that sort of interaction? And how does that sit with you that people were, um, were having so much fun with it? 
I mean, I think that, you know, sometimes it's hard to know exactly what to expect and uh, people react in many different ways. But I suppose that um, for me, it's um, it's good that people react rather than ignore the work, you know. Um, and most of these reactions were obviously really positive. Um, but, yeah, sometimes it's hard to control. Um, maybe, you know, some students might have couple drinks too many and then they might steal the gnome and um <laughs> but for me it's kind of interesting how you know also gnome on that scale has a kind of interesting reference to maybe even social realist monuments of um, eastern europe but in this case you know um it's just a sort of like thinking gnome that overlooks the surrounding environment so now the chrome gnome as you mentioned is moving to the sculpture garden retirement if we yeah. can call it that yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of quite a beautiful place, which has a couple of beautiful galleries and then huge grounds where there is, you know, quite a huge collection of contemporary sculpture. Do you think that that little entourage of little gnomes might reappear there? Um, (laughs) That would be great. I mean, you never know what will happen, but, um, you know, it was quite good that sculpture that was made eight years ago, you know, creates interest again when it's reinstalled in a new space. Bring it bring it over to Toronto sometime. Yeah, I mean, um, (laughs) it was kind of interesting because because what I as as part of this work, we tried to enter uh, this gnome into Guinness Book of Records. But then I don't know, we didn't have enough witnesses or something. And that's why it didn't become kind of official entry. But it's interesting that you're calling me from Canada because I think that the second largest gnome, which is actually all the gnome that it's listed in Guinness Book of Records, is actually from Canada. I think. Well, we need to. We will. We'll, we will investigate that. Guinness Guinness record breakers are big on our program. Let me. Our our amazing producers have come up with this information instantly. Here, I'm going to tell you what yep. what the deal is. The largest garden gnome measures at 7.91 meters, was created by Ron Hale here in Canada. It was built in 1998, but was measured for the record on the 19th of August, 2009. The gnome was part of an amusement park that no longer exists. So you may still be in the running. We'll see. No, but look, this meter, I mean, my gnome is definitely nine meters tall because I made it. So it should be, um, it's taller than the the other one. But like I said, Guinness Book of Records didn't want to enter it because we didn't have enough witnesses. Yeah, they're they're sticklers. You need to revisit that because we've got the meters. I know, (laughs) but sometimes, you know, you kind of think, um, you know, what's important. So I don't know. I think I think uh, the Chrome Gnome or Reflective Lullaby has found a, a lovely place to retire, as we said. Gregor, thank you. A pleasure speaking with you. Nice to talk to you as well. Bye. Bye. Gregor Krager is the artist who made Melbourne, Australia's Chrome Gnome. We reached him in Auckland, New Zealand. His sculpture was commissioned by the McClellan Sculpture Park and Gallery, which is currently inviting artists from around the world, could be you, to submit expressions of interest for its next installment of Roadside Public Art. In a recent letter addressed to COP28 stakeholders, the president-designate of the UN's Climate Change Conference promises to, quote, put those most impacted at the heart of climate action, unquote. 
Well, it turns out some of those most impacted by climate change may be at the heart of preparing for that very conference. And so far, it's not doing them any favors. According to a new report, migrant workers preparing Dubai's Expo City to welcome tens of thousands of COP28 delegates next month are doing so in dangerously hot conditions and in spite of rules that are meant to protect them. Nick McGeehan is the co-director of the human rights advocacy group Fair Square, which published the report. We reached him in Nice, France. Nick, as we record this conversation, it's nighttime in Dubai and it is 32 degrees Celsius. What are conditions like during the day? Yeah, conditions can get pretty dangerous during the day, to be honest, I think is the right word. Um, I mean, we're getting uh, into October now, um, but still, you know, daytime temperatures can get up to close to 40 degrees. Um, and as you see in the nighttime, um, the temperature doesn't drop that far. And of course, humidity is also extremely high and humidity is a major factor in, in causing heat stress risks to, to workers. So it's pretty dangerous. What kind of, of work are these migrant workers, these laborers doing in that kind of heat? A lot of them are doing very exertional work, very strenuous work, construction work, for example, where you're required to do all sorts of heavy manual labour. Um, so there is a large proportion of the migrant workforce that is involved in work, which means that they're not only exposed to heat risks from the environment, which is extreme, but also the heat risks that you generate from the work that your own body does. And when these two things combine, um, that's when you find workers at extreme extreme risk of you know um, negative health outcomes and even death. The UAE has uh, a, what it calls a midday ban. It's a law that prohibits any outdoor work during the hottest hours during the summer. Your report, though, what did it what did it find on that front? Well, what it found um, was that on a very high profile site, uh, the site where they will be hosting negotiations for the UN Climate Summit this year, the workers were being forced to work outdoors in violation of that ban. Now, that's bad in and of itself, but I think what previous research we've done has shown is that those laws in and of themselves are, are insufficient. So there's two problems here. One, the law itself is insufficient in protecting workers, and two, the protection it does offer was being violated um, on a very high-profile site that the UAE government will be using for climate negotiations. That site is called Expo City. What evidence did you compile to support these allegations? So we had heard from sources on the ground that work was ongoing at this site. So uh, essentially we set out to verify that. Um, and we did. We did some on-the-ground investigations. Um, we established that workers were outside. We spoke to them. Uh, we got a sense from them of the risks that they were exposed to. Uh, we checked the temperatures, the days that were working, and we also obtained photographic evidence to, to verify um, to verify this and to, to establish that they were working in violation of the law. In terms of the testimonies, um, the interviews that were conducted, what stands out to you most about about what workers were saying? You know, one one worker said to us, for example, I thought we would die every second we were outside. You know, another said this this weather isn't for humans, but added that, you know, we, we have to do this. It's the only way we get paid. You know, the, this is a highly exploitative and abusive work system. Workers are often heavily indebted when they go into it. They don't have any choice. They can't turn around to a supervisor and say, actually, do you know what? It's too hot. This is a big risk to us. There's absolutely no... I mean, essentially, no real rights for workers out there. You know, they are completely beholden to the commercial imperatives of their employers. So if the employer says go work, they have to go work, no matter how it is. Do they know before they get to Dubai 
you know, do they have any sense of the kind of conditions they're working in or are they being told something else? I think a lot of them are being told something else and a lot of them are being sold a dream. They're being sold regular money and, and, and money that they wouldn't be able to earn back home. Now, now the, often the terms of the contract are, are duplicitous and they don't earn what they were told they would earn, what they were promised. And I don't think, to be honest, they really understand just how bleak and just how abusive yeah. the work can be when they get there. I think it's, it's always very hard to get a sense of that um, when all you can think of is the money that you can bring in, how you can support your family. Essentially what the Gulf states do is they, is they shop around for cheap labour um, and they're only too welcomed in you know impoverished states who like to get a load of um, their workforce off their hands and in return get millions or billions in fact in remittances back so unfortunately it's a fairly predatory system where poorly paid workers are you know are, are um, auctioned off at a fairly low price. A spokesperson for COP28 told the Guardian newspaper that the contractors they're working with deny these allegations and that an internal investigation found no evidence that the midday ban was violated. What do you make of that response from COP28? Well, it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> I mean, I've been looking at UAE PR for a while. I mean, often they just deny this stuff. This is COP28 organizers, though. Yeah, but COP28 organizes mm-hmm. the UAE government. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so uh, in fact, it's it's the UAE government with, with extra PR capacity brought in because they're extremely sensitive to this. So I think when we when we established and verified that what was happening and you know provided them with photographic evidence uh, or you know mm-hmm. they certainly certainly told them that we had that we, we had no doubt that what they would say was just a simple mm-hmm. denial. Um, we are <laughs> supremely confident that we've um, we've established completely the opposite. Migrant workers make up 90% of the private sector workforce in the UAE. Uh, we know the country's national oil company chief, Sultan Ahmed Al-Jaber, will, will lead the climate talks this year. Is this the right place to be holding a climate conference, in your view? No, I mean, it, of course it's not. It's utterly preposterous that you would host a climate conference in a petrol state whose political power, whose international influence is entirely rooted in the extraction of fossil fuels. But is it is it not important to to get buy-in from oil-producing nations at the same time? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, but it is, I don't think this is about getting buy-in to the phasing out of fossil fuels. This is about, in my view and in the view of many people who study the region and study the UAE, this is about delaying the phasing out of fossil fuels and using PR um, to do that. Um, and I think one of, the, one of the things that's vital about this research is it cuts through a lot of that. Nick, thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Nick McGeehan is the co-director of the human rights advocacy group Fair Square. We reached him in Nice, France. Hi, I'm Paul Havershoud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? 
That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. About one in three people in the entire city of Columbus, Ohio, are about to get some welcome news. Any day now, they'll receive word from hospitals where they receive treatment, telling them that their entire medical debt has been forgiven. Last week, the city announced that it had reached a deal with four area hospitals to wipe out $335 million U.S. in health care bills using federal COVID relief funds to cover the costs. Rob Dorans is the acting president of Columbus City Council. We reached him in Columbus, Ohio. Rob, what kinds of stories have your constituents been sharing with you now that they know that this, this weight is going to be lifted from their shoulders? Yeah, I mean, we've heard from a, a number of folks in our community just about their real excitement over really family-changing uh, burden being being lifted from them. You know, everything from, you know, what that means for, you know, putting food on the table to, you know, being able to make sure that, you know, the, their daily needs are being met. It's, it's been a lot of excitement. Before this decision came down and when people did have this debt to deal with, and many others will still carry that kind of debt, as we know. But what kinds of effects was it having on people's lives that made you and the others want to make this move? Well, we know that the number one cause of personal bankruptcy in the United States is medical debt. And we also know that medical debt, based on the number, disproportionately affects women and people of color, uh, you know, in Columbus and across the country. So really, when we thought about how we can make, you know, a generational impacting change from an economic standpoint with some of the federal COVID relief dollars that the city still had. You know, this seemed to be a, a prime way not only to provide that additional economic stability, but also really to target families that we know have uh, had generational impacts that have not been able to ensure that they have the kind of investment that they need to really provide for their family long term. Is, is there a case that stands out to you? I mean, I know there are many when you talk about numbers like that and realities like that. Is there a case that you remember? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the one of the things that really stuck out to me was actually when we were in the process of the legislation, and it was uh, speaking with somebody who uh, had foregone you know medical care for for a number of years. So, you know, one of the things that we've heard over and over again from residents is that you know they put off going to the doctor or taking their kids to the doctor. You know, even though our hospital systems would you know do not deny care to folks based upon having outstanding medical debt. You know, it's the kind of thing that weighs in the family's mind. And, you know, hearing from, you know, this resident in particular who had put off, you know, going to the hospital for a number of years about an issue that they were dealing with um, really spoke to me as far as, like, what this viscerally means for families that, you know, it can be all-consuming and even more all-consuming when you've got a, you know, family member that needs medical care today and you worry about putting that off in the future. And you can sort of see that and hear that from, from, from this resident um, and really being excited that potentially this would not be happening to them in the future with what was hanging over them now. Yeah. Who qualifies to have their debt wiped out now? Yeah, so the program specifically targeting folks that are between 200 and 400 percent of the federal poverty guidelines in the United States. And uh, to put that into to numbers, for an individual, that's someone that's earning about $55,000 a year, or a family of four, it's around someone that's making around $110,000, $111,000 a year. These folks are going to be getting letters in the mail. Do they have to do anything else to get this debt wiped? No, I mean, that's one of the really cool things about the program with having worked directly with the hospital systems themselves is that, you know, they're able um, to wipe the debt right off their books, meaning that no one owes them that money anymore. So, you know, the resident can get the notification letter in the mail 
There's no hoops for them to jump through. There's no application to fill out. Um, at that point, the debt has been relieved, and it'll be coming off any other financial record or anything like that. And, you know, they can move forward knowing that um, not only is it, you know, off, you know, the, the burden is off of them, but also, you know, there's no, no additional steps that they need to take in order to have this debt relieved. The Biden administration's American Rescue Plan is part of what is making this possible. This is stimulus money that's coming, and it's it's coming because they hope it will help mitigate the economic impact that the COVID-19 pandemic had. But do you see the connection between the two that relieving medical debt for these people will help achieve that goal? I do. I think when you look at um, what the COVID-19 pandemic did, uh, specifically to residents of lower incomes uh, here in Columbus and certainly across the country, it you know, disproportionately impacted them. These are those families. I mean, these are working families that were you know, working very hard to make ends meet before the pandemic, and they were impacted significantly during those times. And I think this is a way for us to lighten that burden at least somewhat as we sort of leave that, that time period. Is this so uh, as meaningful as it will be for those who can benefit from it? Is it just a short-term solution, though, Rob? I mean, does it really address the bigger problems, the long-term problems of medical debt? And as we've said, there are people who fall outside, you know, the guidelines of who can benefit. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's, that's a fair critique of this, right? I mean, what I would say as a city council member in, in Columbus, Ohio, the 14th largest city in the country, you know, if I had the power to redesign a lot of our healthcare system to be more equitable and, and more transparent for our residents, I would absolutely do that. But you know, unfortunately, a lot of those decisions are made at the state and federal level, and, you know, we don't have the ability to impact those directly at a local level. So for me, anyways, thinking about what we can do on an issue like this that has, you know, impacted, you know, 300 plus thousand residents, we're talking about one in three residents in, in Columbus, you know, this is a way for us to have a direct economic impact on them today which will hopefully relieve, you know, significant burden for them uh, years in the future. So this should make an impact on those right now with the resources that we have at a local level, with the power that we have at a local level. Rob, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Yep. Thank you very much. Rob Dorans is the acting president of Columbus City Council. He's in Columbus, Ohio. If you've lost track of the criminal proceedings against Donald Trump, let me remind you about the specific one that we'll be covering today. In August, the former U.S. president was indicted for a fourth time, this time in Georgia. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has accused Mr. Trump and 18 other defendants of unlawful efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Now some of those co-defendants have reached plea deals. Lawyer Sidney Powell did on Thursday, and then on Friday another Trump lawyer, Kenneth Chesbro, did too. Melissa Redman is the director of the University of Georgia's Prosecutorial Justice Program. She's also a former deputy district attorney in the Fulton County District Attorney's Office. We reached her in Winder, Georgia. When we think back, Melissa, to when this indictment first came down, it was notable that so many people were charged along with Donald Trump. Do you think that this was Fonnie Willis's strategy from the beginning? I don't think there was a particular strategy as to how many people to charge, but I think just based on her experience with RICO cases here in Georgia, she did intentionally cast a wide net. 
So as a result, we did end up with 19 co-defendants in the case. Mm -hmm. Now that we see these plea deals coming through, what is the broader strategy there? For the prosecution, it would be to try to see with any other um, co-defendants who will be willing to resolve their case short of trial. Of course, as many people who were in the room when conversations were being had, when decisions were being made, uh, would be helpful to the prosecution. Um, for the defense, it's a lot more individual. Like Those particular people will have to decide what's in their best interest, given the nature of the pleas that we're seeing um, individuals being able to walk away with just probation under a First Offender Act, meaning that once they complete the terms of their sentence, the conviction goes away and they can mm-hmm. go on about their lives and their practice. So I imagine that would be very attractive to some of the other co-defendants. And for the state, that means that they are able to bring more people in as witnesses as opposed to the defendants. Does it all help Fonnie Willis, you know, keep that strategy close to the vest to keep it a secret? I do. I do. Because I think and that may have been some of the strategic decisions of around offering these pleas and that not having to present her entire case during the trial of Chesborough and Powell so that the remaining defendants kind of get a free look at to what the state's best evidence would be will be during their trials and give them an advanced opportunity to prepare for that. Of course, they all have the same discovery, so they know what the evidence in the case is going to be, um, but seeing it presented to the jury and seeing how the jury reacts to it would have been very beneficial to the defense. Kenneth Chesbrough, if we start with him, mm-hmm. prosecutors we know dismissed the other charges. He did plead guilty to one felony charge of conspiracy to commit filing false documents. Specifically, what was he accused of in terms of the efforts to to overturn the 2020 election? He was part of the planning of creating these slates of false electors or alternate electors, depending on if you're the state of the prosecution. So as far as how um, to create the templates that the electors would need to fill out, how they should be transmitted um, to the Capitol he was part of all of that, that those strategic decisions about whether this would preserve Donald Trump's challenges, the legal challenges to the results of the election, or whether the purpose was to present Vice President Pence with the method to choose which slate of electors he would count on January 6th, or both. That was part of the overall strategy, um, as alleged by the state, to challenge the results. Um, The defense, of course, would argue legally, and the state would argue that all of this was a fiction, that they knew that those slates were false when they submitted them, um, hence the filing false documents. Sidney Powell also pleaded guilty to six misdemeanor counts we know. In September, a bail Mm -hmm. bondsman pleaded guilty to misdemeanor charges as well. So when you look at the whole picture, what do you think Donald Trump's legal team is thinking here? What will this mean for him? I think it's very early to say what it means for Donald Trump, because, of course, these three individuals entered guilty pleas, implicated themselves, mainly admitted to their role. But the state still has to prove that this was at the direction or on the for the benefit of Donald Trump's with for of Donald Trump with criminal intent. The defense strategy is still that he was either acting under valid legal advice or what he presumed to be reasonable legal advice and that these were legitimate legal challenges to the election results. So unless they are going to testify that they knew 
that there were no legitimate roads to a uh, challenge um, and that he knew that and this was all an effort to overturn, uh, unlawfully overturn the election, it may not be as detrimental to Donald Trump's case as mm-hmm. we would think when you usually have co-defendants testifying and agreeing to cooperate. We mentioned that you worked in the Fulton County District Attorney's Office. So have you been talking to folks there? You don't need to tell us who you've spoken to, but I wonder <laughs> what they're telling you about the atmosphere with a case like this unfolding. I have not, and that's by design. I used to work in a similar unit when I was in the District Attorney's Office and the Public Integrity Unit, as it was called then, under under the prior administration. And so I know from experience that we, we couldn't talk about the cases anyway. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't put my friends that are still <laughs> there in that position. But I can tell you that just working on a case like this, of course, there is no case that anyone has ever prosecuted exactly like this. But just the time and the resources and the effort, um, the hours, the long hours, the weekends, I know they have to be exhausted. So because they're friends of mine, I'm just hoping that since these two cases did plea, I hope they're able to get some rest before um, they have to gear back up again in January for pretrial motions. Besides being exhausted, how do you think Fonnie Willis might be feeling these days, given what's unfolded? I think based on what I know about D.A. Willis, she's very pragmatic. So I don't believe she's either celebrating or apprehensive about moving forward. I think she is kind of like, okay, this is where we are now. What steps do we need to take to move forward, you know, to put ourselves in the best position possible to try the remaining co-defendants? Melissa, I appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Melissa Redman is the director of the University of Georgia's Prosecutorial Justice Program. She's in Winder, Georgia. If you're like me, you leave it to the last minute. A, a day or two before the big night, you realize you've eaten all the Halloween candy that you got, and you still have your Christmas lights up. So you rush to the dollar store to buy whatever candy is left and grab some sad cardboard skeleton to hang on your door, and you tell yourself that next year, for sure, you'll have the spookiest house on the block. I say all this because it's only October 23rd, which means you still have plenty of time to avoid that perennial Halloween decor flop. And if you're in need of some inspiration, Jace Tunnel can probably help. You might remember our conversation with the director of the Mission Aransas Reserve at the Texas Marine Institute. While Mr. Tunnel is out searching for stranded sea turtles, he often stumbles upon creepy dolls and other washed-up misfits that would put the scare in any trick-or-treater. In May, Jace Tunnel spoke to Neil about his collection of creepy finds, which he was auctioning off to benefit a local wildlife rehabilitation group. Jace, I have to tell you, I have no problem with barnacles, definitely no problem with dolls, but I made the mistake, I regret, clicking on the link that shows a photo of one of these dolls. It's a bit terrifying. Yeah, well, uh, you'll probably have nightmares from now on. (laughs) Do you? Yes. I'll wake up in the middle of the night. We found probably 30 of these dolls, and uh, the ones we found recently seem scarier than the ones before, you know? But yet you're still collecting them. 
you know, we're, we're out there trying to educate people about stuff washing in. And so, you know, we like finding natural stuff like sea beans and things like that. But we almost always start off with a photo of a dog because for some reason that brings in a lot of people. And that's what our goal is to try to educate as many people as we can about what's washing in from the ocean. So did you trip on one of these? Did you have a nightmare? What was it that sparked this project and this annual auction? Right. Well, whenever we do our surveys, you know, really we're out there looking for sea turtles and counting endangered species, birds, you know, all scientific stuff. Much more beautiful things. Much more beautiful things. Right, exactly. Exactly. But, you know, when you're driving uh, this UTV along and, um, you know, counting these things, your your eye is focused on – uh, you know, like a stranded animal or something. So whenever you see something that looks like a baby that's on the edge of the water, you know, your heart kind of stops. And then you go up and look at it and it's like, oh man, this is <laughs> terrifying. The storyline of the nightmare is now filling out. Yeah, scene one, I, I get it. But it's not just, you know, we laugh about these dolls and they're a big part of this bizarre collection, important teaching collection, it sounds like. But what are some of the other items? Well, we find a lot of nautical things, like you think about uh, things that fall off of ships, uh, a lot of fishing gear like floats. Uh, we have um, mats that are made from real thick rope. Uh, we found, uh, just like last month, we found a three-foot mermaid uh, that's Naturally. made out of fiberglass. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it, it's just the most random things you'd ever find. Did you think you were <laughs> looking at a real mermaid for a second? Come on. Well, actually, I thought it was a log. I got out to pick up a float, and I looked over and thought, oh, what is that? It looks like a a log wrapped in netting. And anytime there's net, we have to go look to make sure there's not a sea turtle in it. So I walked over to this thing, and it was on its side, and I was like, oh, my gosh, it's a mermaid. Dream come true. (laughs) (laughs) Is that your favorite so far, or is there something else that stands out? Well, yeah, I, I love the mermaid. But there is something that I think is very interesting, which I don't know if people are going to buy it or not. But we have found about six blocks of these steamship coal. So it's actually coal that was on steamships from back in the 1800s. So this is the first year we've had these in the auction. We're going to see if those sell. <laughs> who, who is buying this? I mean, this is, this is junk to, to most people, right? They've discarded it or not, take, you know, not disposed of it properly. Um, so who do you find is... is is bidding on these well so for if you look at buoys and floats you know and, and netting and rope a lot of people use that type of stuff to put on their fences and you know in the front yards to try to have this nautical look because we are on a an island here is where we live and so you know people want to have that theme but when it comes to the dolls or this this coal or some of the more odd items um, I think it's all in how we present it. And so uh, some of the, the weird items we put at a live auction and we kind of make jokes about it. And, you know, like the dolls, we could say, you know, you could put it in your neighbor's mailbox, you know, they'll love it. <laughs> or you can you know, use it for decoration and Halloween, you know, so uh, we kind of build it up and then people start bidding against each other. And so, you know, it's all it's all in good fun to raise money for the sea turtles and the bird rehab center. I, I don't know if, if they listen, but there is a famous, infamous house in, in Toronto that the entire exterior is covered in a variety of dolls. Can't see an inch of the house. Oh, my so God. Na- yeah. They yeah. need to fly down and be at this uh, <laughs> auction. <laughs> I wonder, how much is that mermaid going for? 
don't know if we could use it in our studio. Oh, <laughs> well, this is the fun thing about it is, uh, you know, whenever we start the auction, we always start um, the, the live auction with low bids. And so, you know, we'll probably start off at $20 and then see where it goes from there. But I'm betting it'll go for a couple hundred dollars. There's, there must be just bars and restaurants there that, that love all this stuff too, right? Just to decorate? Oh, there is. And there's there's always this one guy who comes. And if you went to his house and looked at his fence, you can tell, you know, if if somebody's not buying anything, he'll just bid it way down and he'll buy it and take it. And I'm thinking, you know, what's he going to do with this? But if you go by his house, his fence line's covered with this stuff. And so we love it when he comes. You know you're <laughs> we going to do we're well. Gonna sell it. Yeah. <laughs> right. What's the most you've made on a, on a single item? Uh, we did sell a surfboard that we found last year and, um, it went for like $150. And so that's, that's pretty high dollar for, um, you know, we we probably have 200 to 300 different items. Some items go for $5, some go for a hundred, but when all said and done, we usually make, uh, in between 2,500 and $3,000, which is actually a lot of money. Uh, and can rehab a lot of sea turtles. John Oliver has been a contributor as well, buying some of those nightmare dolls, right? Oh, yeah. So uh, John Oliver ended up buying 12 of the dolls, and he paid us $10,000. And so that was a huge benefit uh, to the rehab facility. You know, the funny thing was is uh, when I was on the show saying, you know, this is why we think the dolls are washing up. He's like, nobody cares about the science. He's like... He was convinced that there was some 4,000-year-old girl out there putting these dolls out to give people nightmares. <laughs> totally plausible. Right. Yeah. Well, you'll probably be busy for a while, um, unfortunately or fortunately. Um, Jace, thank you very much for your time. Oh, thanks for having me. From May, that was Neil speaking with Jace Tunnel, director of the Mission Aransas Reserve at the Texas Marine Institute. The late Graham Chapman of Monty Python fame assessing his injuries on As It Happens in 1985 after a spectacular accident on a ski slope in a Venetian gondola with, as you heard, one other person and a dummy. He'd been competing in the San Moritz Classic, an event in which people careened downhill in a Venetian gondola or a piano on skis or a life-size stuffed horse on skis. Look, when you joined the Dangerous Sports Club, you knew what you were getting into. David Kirk, one of the founders of the Dangerous Sports Club, has died at the age of 78. A friend told The Independent that Mr. Kirk, quote, would have been shocked that he died quietly in his own bed, unquote. After graduating from Oxford, he co-founded the group with three other guys who shared his love of adventure and the absurd. 
They hang glided off Mount Olympus. They raced down steep hills in shopping carts. They held a party on a bleak, uninhabitable rock 300 kilometers off the coast of Scotland. And they did it all in formal attire, like a fancy British version of jackass. The Dangerous Sports Club were also the first people to embrace bungee jumping. Inspired by vine jumpers in Vanuatu, in 1979 they got some springy rope from a ship's chandler, went to a party, staggered to the Clifton Suspension Bridge in Bristol, England, directly from the party, tied the ropes to the bridge, and jumped. From a documentary about the Dangerous Sports Club, here's David Kirk. I wanted to get up and stand on the bridge and step smartly off, but we were so wrecked to the party, I thought I'd probably collapse back onto the pavement. And I put a, a scarf around my face because I sure didn't want my mother to recognise me at the next morning's daily paper. Simon and Alan, being prudent engineers, waited to see what would happen to me. After he started coming back again, I remember thinking, oh, it works, we're going to all have to do it now. So at that point, Simon and I jumped off simultaneously. It was just such a wonderful feeling, you know. It's when you go off a bridge or something, you think, crikey, no one has been in this place before. No one has actually been hanging in the air where you've been. That's the fun of it. You know, it's unique. Sensations crowding in. You think, that bridge up there, nobody's ever seen the bridge from this point of view. I always knew the police would arrive when I was hanging under the bridge because that's what police do do. And they were particularly annoyed that they had missed us having been there earlier. It was just a question if they arrived after the jump rather than before it. All four of the bungee jumpers were arrested but let off with a fine. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.